Welcome. You're listening to Value Add with Lars Coburn, bringing conversations and reflections that add value to your life. Okay. Ephesians Session 1. Theology. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to God's holy people in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. These opening words uh, of this letter, this text that we have in Ephesians, in our Bibles, uh, titled Ephesians, I should say, is really one full of a lot of theology. One of the ways that Ephesians has been described to me is um, through the Bible Project, is that Paul summarizes the gospel story and then he kind of links and tells a little bit about our story. Uh, For the Bible Project, if you're not familiar with it, you can go to bibleproject.com and I think it's bibleproject.com, it might be bibleproject.org. Let me pull it up here, Bible Project. Dot com, uh, thebibleproject.com, and you can find these great inspirational videos, these videos that they share uh, through visual storytelling. Um, and as I was blessed by their take on Ephesians, this idea that packed within all of this theology is this retelling of the gospel story and our story. And I think that's actually a great way to summarize what theology really is. We can get lost sometimes when we're reading commentaries. And I'll tell you the two commentaries that I primarily use for this series uh, is uh, the one by Walter L. Liefeld. Um, It's part of the IVP, the InterVarsity Press uh, Academic Commentary Series on the New Testament. And then I love these uh, interpretation Uh, Bible Commentary for Teaching and Preaching. Uh, This one's by Ralph P. Martin, um, and it's on Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. And so I I picked these commentaries up, and I haven't based all of my thoughts on these uh, things. I'm going to share a few highlights from them, but they've influenced some of the things that I've focused in on during this series on Ephesians. But I wanted in this first session, this session one, to not even really read much of Ephesians. I'm going to reference some things in Ephesians, specifically in chapter four, because it's one of my favorite chapters. But for the most part, I would love for you, after this podcast gets over, to read the whole book of Ephesians. In fact, I'm going to be reading us through the entire book of Ephesians in our four series. So there's six chapters. That means that Each of my mini episodes are going to cover two chapters, and how I'm going to do that is through a devotional reading. Uh, So this first episode is going to be kind of my academic one, where I I share a little bit about theology and some things that I'm doing while I'm studying this, and then what I'm going to do is invite you to fall in love with the text through reading it devotionally and thoughtfully and asking questions, reflective questions, and we'll do two chapters in each of the other three mini-episodes. So we'll actually tackle the entire book, and it won't take that long. But my hope is in this first episode, as we think through theology, maybe you've never had a definition of theology. Um, Theo, the beginning of the word theology, and ology um, come together to create the study of, the study of God. So um, 
ology can be a study of anything, zoology, study of animals and different things like that, biology is study of the human um, person basically, the body. Um, uh, there's other sorts of, you know, psychology would be the study of your mind or the psyche. Um, so we can combine these words, we can take them apart and then go, well, Theo is like a god or um, kind of this idea of this supreme being um, and ology is the study of that. Um, theology then gets broken up into a bunch of different versions of theology. So we put words in front of it like systematic theology, which... Uh, tries to discover the different things about God, the different systems. How can we create a system of belief? Um, so if we have a view of creation, then that should not be divorced and separated from our view of the end times. Those things should be working in a common system. And likewise, all the way down through Jesus, the understanding of Jesus uh, dying on the cross has implications for the rest of the story and the belief system. And so we have to work these things out and work through the questions. Uh, another one would be historical theology. Uh, how has people in the past understood God? And so you can study historical theology and maybe not even believe in God because you're just trying to study and understand historically how did people understand God. And that can help us reveal things about how people have answered these questions long ago. And so all of theology really is a bringing of those things together. I'm a practical theologian. Uh, my degree from Fuller Theological Seminary was in a form of practical theology, falls underneath the practical theology department's uh, youth, family, and culture emphasis. And so if I was to go on into a PhD, it would likely be in a form of practical theology, which sounds kind of funny because theology is such a theory. We don't really have concrete ways of grounding everything. But practical theology tries to bring that stuff down to the ground and say, how does this play out? So worship, how does this really, our idea of God and understanding of what we think about God, uh, how does that live itself out in the life of the church, ministry, might be called a form of practical theology that being the hands and feet of Jesus on the ground feeding the homeless caring for the poor and the widow and the sick um, visiting the people in prison uh, clothing the naked um, these are ways in which Jesus kind of calls us to practical theology our idea of God then is concretely lived out so you can see my bias right theology should be practical if it's going to be helpful. And that, that's not necessarily saying that any sort of historical or um, systematic or other forms of theology are not uh, necessarily helpful or practical. In fact, practical theologians don't really come up with anything new. They really read others and bring things together and then try and create a pathway forward. How do we live out these ideas that systematic theology or that these other ones uh, help us? Uh, understand God and then how do we live that out. There is though a key uh, difference in different theologians and their perspectives on faith. So when they um, come to the study of God, there are people who believe in God and there are people who don't and that doesn't necessarily make one a theologian and one not. 
okay? Uh, I actually know some people who uh, think all theologians are not Christians and don't believe in God because uh, they've had so many experiences where they've read or studied under or listened to or heard a talk or read an interview uh, about a theologian kind of talking about how they don't believe certain things that normal Christians kind of accept, like that God, it may have started everything. Um, and so they, there are these very smart theologians who don't start with the understanding that God is the God who reveals himself in scripture. And they try and articulate that uh, through really, really well-grounded research and, and scholarship. I don't want to dismiss anything of what they're saying, but I do think it's important that we begin with a definition that's a little different. And so um, one of the texts that I've had to read in my studies, uh, here I'm pulling it off the shelf, is uh, An Introduction to Christian Theology by Richard J. Plantinga and some others. And in it, um, it's a Cambridge uh, book, and so it's it's been used by seminaries, Bible colleges, um, Christian universities all over the place. And in it, uh, they have a chapter they spend on this question of what is theology and the origin of the term. And I would just encourage you to go back and read through that, the history of that, uh, if you have more questions. But one of the definitions that comes is that there is uh, basically since the medieval times a understanding that faith is the beginning and that we then we have this idea the talk about God is one of the ways that you could say theology is theology is not just the study of God but it's talk about God that we we want to understand more so we're seeking to understand in theology but we should start with faith faith seeking understanding uh, this is it's kind of first attributed to I believe Anselm, as he put it, faith is seeking both um, the content and implications. It's a deepening of the understanding that generates a reasoned account of theology subject matter, which in case of the Christian faith is the triune God creation and their relation. So we're wanting to have a reasoned understanding, but we don't want to start with reason as the basis. We want to start with faith that then leads us to a reasoned understanding of that faith. Okay, does that does that make sense, the difference here? If we start with a reasoning, there are times and places where we can then let go of our faith, a trust in our loving creator known to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, incarnated in Jesus Christ, and we believe God created humanity. That is faith. Now we seek to understand that faith through archaeology and study and rational thinking, and those are good things, right? So um, maybe for me, theology's central question is not who wrote this down or when was this written down or do we know for certain these things, but my question for theology is that I start with this trust in this God who reveals himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus Christ through a book that's been kept for thousands of years now and that is then written down and kept for me. Why is it written down? That is the study 
of theology. That is the question, the central question for me in theology. And so uh, what happens with theology then when we come to a book like Ephesians is that we have a lot of things at play. We have an author at play. We have literature at play. We have historical setting at play. We have the Roman Empire at play and what it means to be a Jew in the Roman world and a Gentile in the Roman world. What does it mean to be a person that's receiving this letter? What does it mean to be someone who follows Jesus receiving this letter? Um, there's cultural things going on that Paul is going to mention, uh, circumcision being one of those things that still happens, but it's not a big cultural difference now. Uh, you, you get asked whether your baby wants you want your baby boy to be circumcised by any doctor, not just whether they're a Jewish rabbi um, or a Jew or a good Jew at that. Um, there, there is just not this difference of cultural things, and yet for Ephesians chapter 2, circumcision is going to be discussed and, and mentioned like as if it's some big cultural thing. So if we miss those historical things going on with the culture, then of course we're going to go, well, circumcision is no big deal now. Uh, so why is this being used? I don't get it. We just gloss right over it. And I think we do at times. There's also things that can help us understand those things. So there's good tools that are that are, help us I mentioned, too, um, the commentary series, the interpretation series, and the IBP uh, commentary series. Another great one, if you're really, really, really academic-y and Greek-y, uh, then you can get the Word Biblical commentary series. Um, and the Word Biblical commentary, it just, man, it helps you understand the structure and the form. And why does, you know, why do we have... Uh, periods and hyphens here, and why does Paul's sentences seem to go on and on? Uh, all those things can kind of be talked about. Um, they do really, really good uh, research on, uh, is this letter really to the Ephesians? Or is this letter um, perhaps a broader audience? And many commentaries do that well. Um, but there are some, some that are higher uh, quality than others. Then there's textbooks, things that we can... We can read systematic theology books that uh, might bring in things and say, in Ephesians, this idea about Jesus or this idea about God is worked out in, in more detail. And there's other resources like the Bible Project I mentioned, how they condense uh, together a lot of information from these other resources into uh, really good, uh, easy to understand and articulate video that's eight minutes long. Or podcasts like this one. Um, and then the last one I would say is like Christian experience, right? There's there's different things that we learn about God and then we connect them to our reading of Scripture. But I want to, to move us from just theology um, and working out that to kind of a, an understanding that when we start with faith seeking understanding, if, if we don't have that, right, we might end up reading someone or listening to someone who... Um, who they're just trying to seek to understand and they're asking questions we're not necessarily asking or they're trying to wrestle with things that maybe we don't need to wrestle because we have this trust we have this belief in this good god who we call creator father son holy spirit jesus um and so i want you to have that in the back of your mind that when you're reading these things when you're studying these things when you're um, evaluating christian experience tools um, questions whatever they are Begin first with faith and then seek to understand. And so as you seek to understand, 
the next part is then applying it, right? So what you might do is you might read a passage from Ephesians, and I'll just pick this one as the example from Ephesians chapter 4, where it um, says in Ephesians 4.29, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of the God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get all rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. So through Ephesians 4, we get this idea we're transitioned from the gospel story to now our story, our response to that gospel story. And as Paul is unpacking what it means to be Christian, he talks about the church and the gifts there and how it's all meant to build the church up to the fullness of Christ. This mature body of Christ that gives and, and receives the blessing of God to the world. And so in many times it uses speaking um, as a form uh, that we do to one another. We, uh, in Ephesians 5, we sing to one another in psalms, hymns. We speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. But it seems to be singing, right? We're speaking to each other through song. Um, in 429 here, don't let any unwholesome talk comes out of your mouth, but be kind and compassionate. In Ephesians 4, earlier on, it says, uh, speak the truth in love. And will grow up in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So we're going to grow together in maturity. And part of that maturity is speaking. So one of the ways that I could interpret this passage um, is that, you know, cussing and sort of swearing is just not good. And I, I, I actually have this interpretation in my life. And so from there, I need to then move to... Uh, interpreting and applying that passage. So now I need to think about the words that are unwholesome for me. So if I've eliminated cussing, I might want to eliminate other words, right? So I need ways of understanding and interpreting this passage. Uh, so I'm going to offer to you that interpretation, an interpretation like this, saying that I'm reading this and I notice in here there's this theology, right? There's this theology about speaking that is about coming to maturity. So as I see the response to the gospel story is for Paul, this maturing of the body of Christ, and in it I notice and interpret that uh, your words matter. And so for me, in my culture, if I was to swear and to use these unhelpful words, that probably wouldn't, uh, that wouldn't be me living out and living into the fullness of Christ, um, this body of Christ that I'm supposed to be part of and bring about the maturity and the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So, how I get there is first um, asking good questions. So, interpretation one begins with asking good questions. Here's some questions that I think are important. Literary questions. What genre form structure does the take a text take and employ? So, in here, um, for instance, there's some poetry Right before the passage where we're to speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs to the Spirit, it has this poem. This is why it is said, and then he quotes a poem. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So in some ways, right, that literature right there 
we're hinted that there's a change in literary literary form. So we would say the genre here has moved from uh, instructive prose to a poetry. And so uh, earlier on, he talks about uh, this is why it is said when they ascended on high, he took many captives captive. But there's some other times where we're not clued into the literary change or prose change, like as in. Um, Verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you. And then he moves. Uh, that seems similar, but then I pray that your eyes may be opened at, for the same power that exerted Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked. And God placed all things under his feet. Now he's moved just from a prayer into this kind of hymn about Jesus who has been placed above everything. Uh, chapter 3 is even more. That was in chapter 1, verse 15. Chapter 3, 14 is even more this way. For this reason I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derive its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and I pray that you be rooted and established in love may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the measure of all fullness of God now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us in him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So he switches back and forth, and it would be good for us to know and to analyze what's this form and structure. Other ones would be context questions. So in this context, I might be reading about unwholesome talk, and I've asked the context question by saying, wow, it seems that he uses speaking multiple times to in this section on the maturity of the body of Christ. So that would be a context question. I ask, what context is uh, don't let any unwholesome talk coming about. Um, you can ask, you know, what's th this text place in the whole, the whole of the letter of Ephesians? Immediate surrounding thoughts, so which Ephesians chapter 4 earlier in it, chapter 5, chapter 3, chapter 6. Uh, how about the whole Bible? What about the rest of the New Testament? Are there other passages that seem to speak to unwholesome talk? Um, you might think about the Old Testament. Are there key words or things requiring further study around this context? Cultural questions. You know, what historical issues are being discussed? I mentioned circumcision in chapter 2. But in here, um, you know, he talks about don't let the sun go down while you're still angry. The Jewish Sabbath began on Friday evening at sundown. We don't typically think about days beginning um, at sundown, right? But... Paul is basically could be saying, and one interpretation could be, that, man, don't let your new day begin with the anger of yesterday, right? So what are the historical things that would be significant here? Um, are there specific rulers or historical information that's given, geography, different things that help us understand the world that Paul lived in so that we can go to archaeology or these other resources and understand? Um, does this text challenge any conventions or values of the historical world to which it was written? This is where you probably need other resources. 
Uh, so you might jot this down and say, I don't get this. It doesn't make sense for modern context. It doesn't seem to be challenging any values modern understanding, but my brief understanding of historical understanding of the ancient Near East for the Old Testament or uh, the Roman world of the first century, um, you know, AC, um, ACE or, uh, or yeah, CE, sorry, a common era or, or AD, um, putting those together, ACE, <laughs> CE or AD. Um, and we just want to understand, you know, was this pushing against that? When Paul writes to children obeying their parents in the Lord and honoring your father and mother, these seem to be uh, rooted in historical context. We would want to then go back to the Shema, which is where Paul gets this in Deuteronomy 5, and read about these things. Um, there's also a meaning in the text, meaning questions. After summarizing all of these answers uh, to the previous questions, maybe I've gone and done some further resource. Uh, research and I've gotten some perspectives. I then try and write down a little bit of my meaning. What do I think this text means? What are the limits to my findings? Uh, what, what do I don't understand still? And what important questions now require further resources? And so this might be where I notice that I've got a lot of questions from the context that need more study. And this gives me an anchor to then go to the next thing, which is using good tools. So interpretation starts with one, um, asking good questions, and then two, continues with using good tools. So good tools, I've mentioned some of them already. Study Bibles, they can help you compare translations. Um, you can use the footnotes. They're not the Bible though. So you need to be very careful when you get a study Bible like the one I have on my shelf uh, from the ESV, uh, which is kind of a robust one. I have a student a study Bible uh, from when I was in undergraduate work um, on the NRSV, which is a great translation of the text. It's very true to the text, but it's somewhat a little dry. And so I like versions like uh, the Message um, as a version of a study Bible uh, because they did um, in the Message study Bible, uh, Eugene Peterson, and then the people who helped him check the work uh, really did a phenomenal job of bringing forth that translation. Um, now, it might not be considered a full translation by many people and by a lot of academics, but to me, it's as good as any study Bible's footnotes because it's one person's opinion on what this text means. And so you can maybe ask some questions like, who are they quoting? Who are they trusting? So this would lead you to further study. Uh, so if you read a, a study Bible and they point to a commentary that they use, then you can look at that commentary. So another tool uh, make sure when you're reading commentaries that you look for clear and understandable explanation. You avoid the overlap academic commentaries. They're just of no help. This is where I would say, that's why I like the interpretation series over the word biblical. Even though the word biblical commentaries are better commentaries, they're overly academic at times. Unless you're doing a specific study on a specific verse or maybe even just one chapter, reading an entire commentary of the word biblical on one book is enormous amount of work and time and often requires you to know Greek and Greek uh, or Hebrew, depending on which uh, part of the Bible you're reading. Whereas if you read something like the short commentaries uh, for say the interpretation series or these IVP, University Press commentaries, uh, or even my favorite ones uh, for short kind of reading through devotionally commentaries are um, 
the Everyone Commentary series by uh, N.T. Wright uh, on the New Testament, and I believe John Golden Gay did some of the ones on the Old Testament. Um, Mark for Everyone is one of the ones I have by N.T. Wright. A great, um, easy read. There's, you know, page or two per chapter on uh, the Gospel of Mark, and so it's very quick, easy to breeze through. Great preparation work, and again, N.T. Wright writes so well. Um, so he's academic, but he's not writing in an academic way. I would say hold loosely the applications that are made. So in this stage, you want to look for how they are addressing the questions that you had, that you asked when you did a close reading of the text. Then you go to the commentaries, you answer those questions, and then you compare and contrast some of the different commentaries. So I would recommend two or three um, commentaries just to make sure that you're not being blinded by one person's perspective or one person's application. And then, you know, if you're not sure where to begin in commentaries, maybe you don't have a series of commentaries, uh, a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia is a great place to start, just like I said with the study Bibles. Uh, you can look at the bibliographies or references, and they'll give you a list of resources, whether they're um, systematic theologies, textbooks, or uh, commentaries. And you can do the study yourself. Um, they'll usually give you a bullet, like, you know, a page or a uh, paragraph on a specific topic or passage or theology. And so if you found something in the text, you can go to a Bible dictionary or encyclopedia and look up like circumcision, or you can look up um, unwholesome talk or uh, some specific Greek word that you ran across in one of your commentaries, and you can find some more further resources. Uh, textbooks, systematic theologies, I would recommend, again, authors like N.T. Wright. Um, they're respected in their field, but they're accessible in the way that they write. Uh, so I, I also have some systematic theologies by um, Jürgen Moltmann. Um, I have some by Karkanen. Um, I have some uh, by uh, by N.T. Wright. I have uh, his as well. And, and I would just recommend that find someone that you can read in an accessible way. Um, other resources, as I mentioned, the Bible Project, Logos Bible Software, Christian Experience, these are tools that we can use uh, to understand a text. But the third part of interpretation, so right, the first part of interpretation is asking good questions. We read the text closely and we ask these questions to understand, to start with faith and then seek understanding. The second part is to use good tools. So not use tools that are going to detract or ask questions we're not asking or needing, uh, but to really use tools that help us in understanding and answering some of those questions. And so we want to evaluate and be careful with the tools that we use. And then the third part of interpretation is wise application. So as we interpret, uh, as we ask questions and we get answers, then we make application. This is where the rubber meets the road, for instance. This is when we're walking down the street and we actually need to put it into practice. So interpretation, I ran across this in a book called Organizational Leadership uh, for Christian Leaders. Here, I'll pull it off the shelf just so that I have it in front of me. Uh, it's by... Uh, 
It's edited by John Burns, John Shoup, and Donald Simmons. Uh, the different chapters are written by uh, different authors. The chapter that I believe um, I'm taking this illustration from is in um, is from John Shoup and Chris McCorney, I believe, on decision making. And so, uh, in many ways, we uh, the nature of decision making. Uh, is the section that they have, page 199 in this book, Organizational Leadership, Foundations and Practices for Christians. Um, great book, great stuff uh, that I think um, I, I think we all need to think about. And that is that um, there's this pyramid. So what they use is they adapt a, um, a pyramid of information, uh, levels of understanding, they call it. And so it's it's modified from Acoff's hierarchy of types of the content of the human mind. And they put an additional piece in. So here's how the triangle works for them. The bottom of the triangle, the foundation of the triangle is data, or you might call bits of facts. So data is just a lot of things buzzing around there. So as I'm walking along on the sidewalk, or as I'm using this sidewalk illustration, the bits of data are grass is green, uh, or this side of the grass is brown. Uh, the concrete versus asphalt. These are bits of facts about what the environment is that I'm walking on. There's a woman with her dog. That's facts, right? Um, it becomes information when I pattern it together. So now, if I said I was walking on the sidewalk between street A and B, and the woman walking with her dog passed me. Now I have an information. I have information about where the woman is. She has a dog. Uh, she was wearing a coat that was made of whatever, and we struck up a conversation. Now, I've given you a pattern of information. Bits of facts, data out there, um, have been patterned together to say this is some information that I want you to know. It becomes knowledge when it's organized around a narrative. Now it's knowledge when I tell you about her name, Sarah, let's say, and Sarah's dog's name is Monica. And as Sarah and I are interacting, she tells me about something and I then am conveying that story to you and telling you about how uh, this happened. It becomes knowledge now. It's not just information. It's not just streamed together. It's organized around a narrative. Knowledge then takes on another level of understanding when that knowledge is goal-directed. I'm not just telling you the story. I'm telling you that you should go visit Sarah's brother who's in the hospital and you should be part of that. I have this goal. I want you to know Sarah. I want you to know about her story and I want you to go visit and intervene in her life. So that becomes a goal-directed thing. Wisdom is when we discern um, all of the different, the next level of understanding, is when we discern the different priorities in our life. Okay? There are many telos knowledges, there are many goal-directed knowledge um, out there. So uh, Here's the, the pyramid again. Data is the bottom level, then information, then knowledge, then telos knowledge, and then the top of the pyramid is wisdom. So wisdom is discerning the telos knowledge. One of the ways that I articulate about telos knowledge and that I've found a great way to articulate this is a student who is studying um, 
in school, let's say they're a sophomore in high school, and in order to stay on their team, they need to have all Bs. Uh, their team has said that we know that you can have Cs to pass and to stay on the team and to keep a GPA for the state requirements or the CIF requirements. Um, but we want you to have Bs. We want you to be scholarly athletes. And so to be on this JV team, you need to have Bs. And uh, you can have a B minus on the JV team, but then by varsity team time, you have to have all Bs uh, or higher. And so we're, we're holding you to this standard, okay? That's a telos knowledge thing, right? Uh, we've taken the bits of data, the facts about this person's life, that they're on, that they're an athlete, that they're on this team, that they go to these classes. We've streamed it together as information about this one student. It's knowledge then when I organize it around a narrative that they want to play sports. It becomes goal-directed when it when we realize that they have to keep a certain GPA. So let's say this student is studying and they have a C at halfway through the semester. And their coach comes to them and says, you need to go see a guidance counselor, um, a school counselor, to help you turn that B or that C into a B. In fact, uh, I think you should talk to your parents about turning this around from this C to an A. How can you get an A in second, uh, the second semester to stay on this team? Um, and so now we have this, this goal-directed knowledge. That's telos knowledge. But wisdom would say that there are, there's a discernment that has to go on, right? That this student needs another level of understanding. They can have the school counselor give them the goal, the telos knowledge. They can know that that's the goal from their coach, but they have to then have wisdom to discern the things that they can't do in order to accomplish that telos knowledge because there's other telos knowledge that's happening in their life. Their friend group also has goal-directed knowledge about their life. They have goals about going to uh, the party on Friday night and staying up all night and then uh, binge watching Netflix all Saturday so that they don't do any homework on Sunday because they also have a goal-directed knowledge of going to church, a telos knowledge of their youth minister wanting them to come to church. And so now this student needs wisdom to say there are good telos knowledge things out there like going to church and there's good telos knowledge things like goal-directed get this C to a B so I have to study and even in fact there's some good things about hanging out with friends right and creating a core friend group and so we might we might say that that friend group is destructive we might also say there's other examples where friend groups aren't destructive right that we need positive peer interactions playing that sport is then another goal directed knowledge and they could be in competition with each other they're all good things or maybe maybe the partying thing is not good and so we hope the wisdom discerns the priority to say no to the bad thing. But what happens when we have to say no to the good things? The things like prioritizing and not giving up the things we want, uh, the things that we uh, most care about, most desire about, for the things that we want now, right? Um, we don't want to give up the good things in our life. Um, but we need to discern. We need wisdom because all of these telos knowledge things cannot work together. And so I think um, 
we are faced in the reading of our text in interpretation with a lot of good telos knowledge. Okay, that would be what I describe as application. So there's data, might be words on the page, right? It's information when it's gathered together and it's patterned in sentences. Okay, so Paul writes in writes information, but he writes more than just information because it's knowledge. It's based around and organized around a narrative about the Son Jesus Christ who came and loved and lived, and it's becomes knowledge because it's written to a specific group of people around these ideas and questions about how to live the Christian life in the book of Ephesians. Now we have telos knowledge when we say, yes, Paul wrote this and he had some application in mind for the Christians that they should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and what that looked like. What does that look like for me? What is the goal directed, uh, the goal and the direction of my life take when I discern that submitting to one another is what I need to do. Well, I gotta live that out. I gotta submit to my wife or to uh, the people in my church or to the elders at my church on decisions that they've made or to uh, friends in my life who need to uh, help me be accountable about my sins or about my uh, habits or about the things that I'm doing, uh, the ways that I speak and the words that I use. But in reality, when we've done close study of the text, there are a lot of wise applications. There are a lot of telos knowledges, if you will. So for us, as Christians, we've got to do the hard work of gaining wisdom, of coming, ratcheting up just from the goal-directed knowledge, which is what I would describe most application. Um, there's a commentary series that's great. It's a great commentary series called the Life Application, uh, NIV Life Application Series, and it's by Zondervan. And they have uh, a commentary for every book of the Bible. And the great way is it's almost like a Max Cicado book, right? It's it's very devotional. It, it You read the passage of scripture and then it says, this is maybe a way that you would apply this in your life. And they do great lengths of bringing in stories about how people have applied this in their life in a modern context. Great stuff. But I wonder if that's what we've reduced the Bible to. We've reduced it to these goal-directed things. And I think we've missed the times where we have to discern the priorities. Because there's times where one interpretation is going to lead us to an application that might conflict or might detract from the priorities of Jesus on our heart, on the transformation of our heart. Now, what I mean by this is, in tragedy, um, someone might need a way to express their sorrow. And so they might do the wise reading of Scripture, they might go to using good tools, so they might ask these questions like, what is the psalmist wrestling with in, say, Psalm 13 or Psalm 44, uh, which ask questions like, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Um, you know, we've heard with our ears, O oh God, our ancestors have told us what you did in long days ago, but you're not doing them right now, basically, is what the psalmist is crying out. You've rejected us. You've humbled us. You no longer go out with our armies. 
And so you might feel that way in the loss of a loved one. You might experience that suffering uh, when a child of yours dies. You might feel that loss or that questioning of God. And you might go to the scripture and say, I'm going to ask these questions. How can the psalmist ask these questions? What's culturally going on? What's the context? You might use good tools like commentaries and Christian experience like podcasts or other sources. And good Christian pastors are going to say to you, you know what's going on in some of these psalms that we call the imprecatory psalms? They're cussing at God. Did you know that you could cuss at God? That you might need language that is controversial, that is inflammatory, that is explicit when you're expressing your hurt and your pain to God. And that God wants those spaces. He doesn't want this division of the sacred and secular. He doesn't want you to be a person who is just, you know, coming to him with all your goody things. Like, God, I'm just so grateful that you're like a big Santa Claus and all I do is ask you for good things. God wants to be there in your sorrow and he can handle your questions and he can handle your pain. And so here's language to express it. That is a wise application, a telos knowledge application of the imprecatory Psalms. And it's one that I see very well held up by a lot of good friends of mine. But it is in contrast for me with do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, which became a goal-directed knowledge in my life, a telos knowledge application. In my life growing up, I couldn't even say the words nuts when I stubbed my toe because my mom discovered that we were saying it so much. So we would sit around the table And we would say something like, Mom, well, does that mean that if there are nuts on the table, we can't say pass the nuts? Because we would say, ah, nuts, instead of whatever else our friends were saying. Um, For my parents and for me growing up, I couldn't say, oh my gosh. And I still, that's probably the first time I've said it in a long, long time. I only actually use it when I'm using this as an illustration. That I know that that is a replacement. The word gosh is a replacement for God. And for me, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth was, don't use these words uh, that are saying, I'm cussing at God. I'm frustrated with God. And we've minimized this because in our culture, we've used those languages for anything as simple as I lost my keys and I panicked and I use, oh my, OMG or whatever, or I text OMG when something crazy surprising happens. And so we've minimized the the effects of those. But when I go to the Psalms, I see this need to cry out to God in our pain, to say, God, where are you? In an explicit way. That might be a wise application, but it's in contrast to the priority of the goal-directed knowledge in my childhood that I still adhere to, which is I don't let any unwholesome talk come out of my mouth. So this is where my level of understanding needs to rise to wisdom. Because for me, I have let my, if you will, application, my goal-directed knowledge, become a way in which I've judged other people who had discerned differently 
who had made also wise application in their life of needing a space to cry out to God in their pain and to use explicit words. And so that led me to be harsh and critical and actually let unwholesome words, not expletives, not cussing, but words that tore people down instead of building them up. And so I actually no longer was on the telos knowledge path of don't let on any unwholesome words come in my mouth by critiquing other people who had made a wise application of using cuss words. So you see how I needed to grow in my understanding. I was not at the level of wisdom. I had not discerned the priorities about how in my life I had come up with a priority to say, I'm not going to use certain words, but that doesn't excuse, that doesn't mean that other people can't use those words in a helpful way. And then I excused myself. Uh, I wasn't using wisdom. I was excusing myself to just say, I can speak unwholesomely. I can speak unhelpfully about someone else as long as I'm not using these certain words to do it. And that saddens me, right? And so what I want to come back to is that with interpretation, uh, we need to first ask those good questions. We need to use good tools. We need to grow in our level of understanding because there are going to be times where the Bible presents us with, the text presents us with many, many things, many ways in which we need to apply the text. There are packed full in Ephesians things that you and I need to apply to our lives. But in this little mini-series, the next three episodes, as I draw out some of these things, we need to use wisdom as we apply them. We need to discern the priorities that exist in the text and not move so quickly to just saying, yeah, that's a great application. Because if we do move too quickly and we don't realize that there's implications to the applications we're making and that we're not wisely discerning, do I have the capacity to add this application to my life? Perhaps Jesus is already working on my heart in another area, and perhaps this one will distract me from the hard work that God is doing on my life right here. Perhaps I haven't thought through the implications about how this is actually going to enable me to be a critique or a judge, a judger and not a loving person when I know that the highest discerning priority in my life is to love God and love others. And I allowed this, what seemed like a good thing, not to use cuss words, it it actually made me unwise. It made me a person who was judgmental and, and hurtful. And I said harsh things about someone because they had cussed in front of me in a religious context. How odd that I would use this level of understanding and this interpretation of the Bible, this application, then to actually ignore a priority in my life to love. But it happens all the time. A good priority in the text can sometimes not be one uh, that we should live out at this moment in our Christian walk because it will distract us or it will be done from the wrong motives. And so that's where wisdom comes in. We want to make wise application. We don't want to just apply everything. We want to make wise application. And that might mean that we go back uh, to go forward. I want to close uh, by just telling um, a little bit of a story. Um, and that uh, that story is that 
uh, I went on a camping trip recently with um, my friends uh, in youth ministry that uh, were graduating. So uh, the students, there were three of them that were able to go on this trip, and uh, two guys and a gal, and we were uh, went to Zion National Park in Utah. And so we drove over there. It took us about six hours. Um, we went to Vegas. We, we stopped in Las Vegas and we saw the strip for just a moment. We walked through the MGM Grand and went to um, the M&M store and the Coke store. And as I was talking with them about some of those things, I, I talked about how funny it is that the, your youth minister is the first one to take them to Vegas. And uh, and I said, you know what, the, the interesting thing is that I want you not to be ignorant of this stuff. I want you to be wise. Uh, alcohol content, smoking, gambling, pick your thing. I want you to be wise. I want you to discern the priority in your life. Does this fit in the priorities of your life? And there's some fun aspects, the lights, the people, the craziness, and that's why I like going and stopping through there on my way when I can, just to see the M&M store and the Coke store. But the glamour and everything just, it doesn't fit my priority. Likewise, as we went to Zion, um, you know, I was sitting with them around the campfire and then on the hikes, we were looking at these tremendous mountains and we were saying, wow, this is amazing. God is so good. And they made that observation, God is so big. And that was something that I thought was so cool that they were observing that. And as we were hiking, um, we got close to the top and one of the students was struggling on the hike and I was thinking about my you know the question like is it worth getting all the way to the top and he was trying to say you know just leave me here and I said you brought your camera let's go up we want to complete this we want to conquer this mountain we want to get to the top and then so as we got to the top now we're the ones coming down and people are asking you know is it worth it is the view worth it and we said, yeah, yeah, the view is worth it. The goal is worth it. And we could have explored a bunch of side paths to the top. We could have uh, tried to see what was in the hidden canyon to the side. We could have tried um, to just do the easy hikes at the bottom of the base of the mountain. But we chose to go all the way to the top. We chose to complete the task. And I, I don't want you to miss the task of theology. I don't want you to miss the task of interpretation. That it really is to get to the top and see how good and how big God is. That in Jesus, he's brought it all together. And so as you do interpretation, keep these words of Paul in your mind. As a prisoner of the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Thanks for tuning in to Value Add. For more great conversations and insights, visit valueaddconversations.com.